Hello, everyone. This is Matt Kamen, co-founder of Envision Consulting and the host of Nonprofit on the Rocks. And with us, as always, is Ashley Watterson, our magnificent producer. Is that fair? I will take that over mediocre all day. I don't know if her brain needs to know this, but you started the nonprofit underscore on underscore the underscore rocks Instagram page because you couldn't figure out how to do it without the 19 underscores, right? Right. It was like a generated name that they just gave me and I accepted because that's what a Luddite I am. I mean, I think it was a Saturday night because I feel like I got a text on a Saturday night saying, hey, guess what? I started this Instagram account and you had been, I don't know, on your 15th wine bottle that night, right? (laughs) That sounds about right. If it was a Saturday night, yeah, at least. And then you just didn't pay attention. There were 19 underscores. So my point is that you were harassing me on my private uh, Instagram account, I feel like. <laughs> I mean, again, I, after 15 bottles of wine, my memory is a little fuzzy on this, but it is very possible that there was some harassment. So as you know, uh, and I don't know if our viewers do, because yet again, no one's DM'd me, just FYI. I don't know how many Seriously. times I say this. You guys, again, help me help you. Just DM the guy so I don't have to hear about it anymore. Every morning I wake up and I'm like, oh, is today the day? And every morning my hopes are dashed. My day is ruined because nobody cares. I'm going to have to start a new Instagram account with a ton of underscores, of course, naturally. That will sort of be the giveaway that it's me. But I'm going to put a bunch of pictures of like scantily clad men that look like Fabio on horseback on this account. And I'm going to slide into your DMs just to make Philip jealous. Please make it happen, Ashley. I want you to make that happen, but I'm I'm going to I'm going to go back to the conversation that I was having before we both became completely inappropriate. <laughs> and uh, as you know, I just came back from Europe and it was spectacular, but what I want to say to the audience that I feel like people need to know me a little bit more is that my husband is an enormous fan of uh, the sound of music. This and, is why Philip and I are soulmates. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And so we were in Salzburg, where The Sound of Music was filmed. Uh, yeah. And I wanted to go back to how I was saying you were harassing me. The reason why you were harassing me is because every single day I got a new message from you on Instagram telling me all about the things I needed to do for The Sound of Music. And to be honest, Ashley, I don't care. And so he dragged me to every single site that he could from the movie. You went to Mirabelle Gardens. You ran up the stairs and down the stairs singing Joe Remy and all of that. Actually, the one thing that I couldn't figure out how to do was put him in a dress and have him twirl around on that mountain. We couldn't find that mountain. And that, that was the one thing I wanted. Did but you guys that. just dress up in Lederhosen and get drunk? Lederhosen cost $400 to buy. So we didn't do that. But there were many, many a hot male in Austria wearing Lederhosen. And I enjoyed it. You didn't even know that Lederhosen was a fantasy. I didn't. And now I understand why you have to be gay to enjoy the sound of music. I don't want to speak for the women out there, the straight women. Maybe Lederhosen is a fantasy out there. I don't know. But my fun, favorite fun fact from the tour that I went on was that in the movie, when the Von Trapp family is climbing that mountain and they are escaping into Switzerland, apparently the actual geographic location of that climb took them straight into the heart of Nazi Germany. I tried to find that mountain. I did. I had the nun outfit for Philip. We were ready to take the video. I think the moral of the story is Philip and I 
need to get together for a viewing of the movie where we can pause it and talk about all the locations that we saw when we did the different touring of Salzburg. Philip, if you're listening, we're doing it. It's a date. It's happening. Let's let our poor listeners not have to hear any more of this. We'll just leave it at that. Today's episode is very exciting. This was interesting for me because I looked back at the video that you put together of this and it had me in facial hair and I kind of liked it. I was a little bit turned on by myself. <laughs> but the, the question is, should I grow back my facial hair? I mean, I think the person you should be asking is yourself. Honestly, I thought you looked drop dead gorgeous with okay. your facial hair. Now, granted, I have a husband with a beard who is constantly grooming the beard. He's always pointing out other guys' beards and how good they look, which there could be some concerning things there. But overlooking that, um, facial hair, yes, 100%. I thought you looked great. All right. Well, anyway, so I looked back at the video and I saw myself with facial hair when I was uh, speaking with Elisa Barrett, who is the executive director of Western Justice Center. And from all of you who are going to be listening to this episode, Western Justice Center is an organization based in Pasadena in California, and it focuses on conflict resolution education, a fantastic nonprofit, a wonderful mission. And our conversation was really and, and is really timely, especially now after the election. Uh, when it comes to vaccinations, I mean, I have people in my family who refuse to get vaccinated and I really want to burn their house down. And so she teaches me how not to do that. And so those are the kinds of things that I feel like are going to be very important for everybody to listen to with Elisa, who is one of the smartest people I know. It's just staggering. I think you even say at one point in the episode how just listening to her talk, you're like, huh, I feel like I have done absolutely nothing with my life. <laughs> and you're an accomplished fellow. First of all, you just got a raise. And is there anything else that you want to share with folks before we go into our episode with Lisa? If you haven't already, subscribe to our show, like us, write a review. Please stay tuned for this great episode with Elisa Barrett. Welcome, Elisa Barrett. Everybody needs to know you and I are neighbors. We also go to the same gay synagogue, and yet we've seen each other twice at Trader Joe's, and we've been like, let's get together, let's get together, let's get together for Shabbat, and it's never happened. Oh my God, that is happening. You're coming over to our house. We're going to kick up our feet and we're going to have a Shabbos meal. Uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. It's going to happen. Before. We've said this before. But, but we're going to do it. I'm not going to. Now we're going to do it. I'm not going to give you shit at the beginning of the podcast, just later. But anyways, <laughs> everybody knows um, you are the executive director of Western Justice Center, which is an incredible organization in Pasadena, which we will get to. Um, but before we do, and before I can tell you how terrible of a friend you are, and me, by the way, I'm going to blame myself on that. You have a meeting tonight, so you can't be drinking, even though this is Nonprofit on the Rock. So what are you, what are you enjoying right now? Yes, I am very grateful to serve as a member of the Los Angeles City Redistricting Commission, which is Democracy in Action. And so I have uh, bubbly water, my two favorite flavors, cherry and lime. And I will be alternating during our conversation. <laughs> I I just want everybody to know that I do think there's a little bit of vodka in those cans. But, you know, that's why she just pretended to open a new one up. But we both know there's a little it's bit of vodka in there. It is truly only H2O. <laughs> well, I am just going to have a little bit of bourbon. I want to talk about Western Justice Center, but I want to also talk about crisis resolution. I think that that's really important. And I feel like I need to sort of take your ED hat 
off. So I'm going to talk to you first versus Western Justice Center. You know, we just had an election. You know, really, we have a very angry country. People are pissed. People don't trust each other. People don't have conversations anymore. If somebody starts talking politics, I want to walk out of the room because I know I'm just going to get mad. Like if you voted for Trump or you didn't or whatever, I, I don't want to know anymore because I just don't want to, I don't want to deal with this. But I know that that's not where we are. And how, let's assume Thanksgiving was around the corner um, and, you know, families are a real pain in the ass. What do we do as a country? What do we do as people? And I remember I'm, I'm asking you as you and not Western Justice Center. because Yeah, because we're nonpartisan. Right. What do you yeah. do? I have neighbors and they have relatives from Texas where I grew up. And um, they were visiting, you know, for Thanksgiving. And somebody's boyfriend had also grown up in Missouri outside St. Louis. And he had a lot of opinions about Black Lives Matter and what was happening in Ferguson. Um, and he was in construction and he had a lot of opinions about immigration and day laborers and all kinds of things. And so if I am in that conversation and my objective is to be right, we're not really going to get very far. But if my objective is to open the mind of the person that I'm talking to and create some kind of bridge then I have to ask questions. I have to listen. It doesn't mean that I'm not going to call him out and say, well, from my perspective, you know, I have another way of looking at that. Here's how I look at it. And here's why. And does anything about that connect with your experience? Um, It could be, you know, sometimes like we're just going to agree to disagree on certain things and not, but, and right. Like an improv. Yes. And, (laughs) Where's the yes and with that person? And it, it could be very small. This particular person was able to see the irony of the viewpoint that he had on immigration with the fact that almost all of the people that he employed in his construction firm were from the Latinx community, and many of them were immigrants. And would he admit possibly that some of them didn't have documents? to be present in the country? And did he see anything in himself in them? And we got to this place where he was like, well, I pushed past the rhetoric. He was like, I'm a self-made man. I'm hardworking. I have my own business. And I may disagree with how some of these guys got here, but they're like me. They're hardworking. They want to support their family. They want to build a better life for the next generation. And I don't agree with how they got here, but I agree with how hard they work. Now, doesn't mean that I don't have all kinds of problems with dot, dot, dot. And we found that one thing that allowed us to remain in community with each other. So I didn't have to just grab my plate of food, ask my neighbor to pack it up and walk next door and get out of there. So, but, but here, so, and, all right, I'm going to get and and not but. I'm going to take, I'm going to take your cue, and. 
I have friends, so I'm going to make this neither party. I have friends yeah. who have said that if you voted Trump, they don't want to be your friend. They just literally don't want to be your friend anymore. They don't want to hear from you. They want you off Facebook. They don't want to be your friend. And I know people who said the same thing about Biden. Look, we all know the arguments out there. We all know, all know what people said, and we saw it. You know, we saw so many things happen. But if I have a friend, look, it didn't happen. But let's just say I voted Trump. And I have a friend who said, I don't want to be your friend anymore because you voted Trump. There's nowhere to, you can't go around that. So... What do you think of that? And that's an impossible question it's, to realize. It's really a very difficult question, right? I went through a long period where I was really like, I would like to understand why you supported this person. What is it about their personality or their policy positions or their approach to life that attracts you? And in the process of asking those questions, I got to know more about the people that I was in a relationship with. And in some cases, there was still enough of an intersection of values and perspectives that it made sense for us to remain friends. And in other cases, I learned certain things that I thought, "Hmm, I think we can be acquaintances and we can be in community, but if I have to choose those people that I share the preciousness of time with, I think perhaps you are not going to be on that list long-term. Right. And I say that with both um, confidence in my decision and also with sadness, right? Because I have to tell you, some of my best like airline travel stories are getting to sit next to somebody from a different part of the country who votes practices religion, has relationships very different from myself. And just getting to ask the person a ton of questions about who they are and why do they believe that and how do they come to believe that and have them in some cases actually reciprocate and do the same for me. And I I don't think either of us was voting differently when we got off the plane but we could be in community with each other without thinking that um, that other person is less human or should be subject to violence. Or, And I think there's a very important social fabric threading that comes from running into people that we don't agree with, being able to have productive conflict and come out the other side agreeing to disagree, but without being mortal enemies. And I think we've lost a lot of that. I don't know whether that's social media or we have a whole media environments where you don't have to encounter information outside your worldview. I think that's very dangerous. If I search something in Google versus you searching something in Google, it's going to be completely different because- Completely different based on my past search history. Right. And that- cuts us off from seeing anything else and just basically at the end of the day, really honestly hating and not trusting the other person. And I think we've gotten to such a bad place, you know, liking somebody, respecting somebody or agreeing with what they believe in are all very different. And I don't know if we know the difference anymore. And I think that that's so challenging to fix. I think we have to. I mean, back to my organization, the Western Justice Center is a conflict resolution education organization. And it's about giving people the skills and capacity to navigate conflict productively as an avenue for 
youth empowerment, and leadership development. So why is it important for young people to be adept at conflict? You can't run a business without that skill. You can't pass legislation, as we've seen, without that skill. You can't stay in a long-term relationship without that skill. All these things that are about the messiness of the human experiment are really about being conflict adept. Democracy does not exist without a population that knows how to navigate conflict without resorting reflexively to sectarian violence. Yep. So it's both like social emotional learning and understanding conflict and understanding underlying needs and like all the basic lesson plan of conflict resolution education at the micro level, but at the macro level, it really is, are we seeding a next generation with different tools than the ones that those of us who are in leadership are using right now? So you said something that I thought was really interesting that I kind of want it to be like my motto at some days. It's like, life is messy and it is messy. And I don't think people like that. Like we all want to like, you know, color within the lines, but life is messy and it should be because it makes you have these conversations. It forces you to look at other things, look at things different ways, but like it's messy. Is it messy or is it generative? You could look at my resume and think that's messy. (laughs) Or you could look at it and say, what a creative, interesting person. Sure, sure. So it's all framing. Yes, let's normalize messiness. Messy is good. Coloring inside the lines is fun, but finger painting is also fun. And finger painting is messy, but it's not bad. It's just a different way of approaching visual art. I really hope that if you're a parent listening to this, that you like take, you go home tonight or tomorrow, you're drinking. Like, messy is good. <laughs> and you make your kid, just make your kid draw out, like paint outside the lines, like enough already. Like I've had it. That's what, that's what uh, fantastic is for. You can like clean down that wall, but like, you know, it's, it is so important. And I really appreciate you saying it the way you did, because I am tired of like when COVID goes away and we can hang out again. <sighs> I just want to be able to have those conversations and we're not there. And I, I hope that we can be because it's life is just so sad without it, you know? Um, well, so. you, you know, this, I mean, you, you're the co-founder of Envision and I should say, you know, full disclosure, Western justice center hired Envision for our strategic planning process. And one of the wonderful things working with you and your team is that we had a long strategic planning process. It was 15 months We had some big organizational shifts happen, some planned, many of them not planned, in the middle of strategic planning. And we were in that messy middle for a long time. And it has taken me many, many years as as an executive director to embrace the messy middle. I used to hate it. I used to think the messy middle meant that I was failing. I was a bad leader. I didn't have a clear vision. Um, But what I've learned over time is a messy middle is a gift. You could just breathe and let it in because it's a generative space. It's a creative space. New ideas come about in the messy middle. You might think I've got to go direction A to B. And then you're in the messy middle and you're like, there's a direction X. 
I had no idea about Direction X. I love Direction X. Let's talk about what it would take for us to move toward Direction X. So again, like embrace the messy. Messy is good. You know, I appreciate this, by the way, because, you know, my staff forced me to start this podcast. I actually like it now, but they forced me to do it. And I definitely don't sell Envision ever. So you did not prompt me or pay me to say that. (laughs) I did not. On the contrary, you paid us to do this draft plan. So like, I feel like (laughs) you totally did that. So thank you. Um, You have gone through so much in your career, more than I knew to get to where you are today. So I'm curious, first of all, what is the one thing that you love the most about being an executive director? And what is the one thing that you just, it, you just, if it went away, you wouldn't be upset. So I love working with a team. I think that success in the nonprofit world is a team sport. And I feel incredibly blessed. We have a talented, creative, innovative staff. And we have a board that is willing to do self-reflection and willing to be creative and be our partners, right? In gestating the work of the organization. And there's all these incredible community partners. So that's my favorite part of the job is getting to be on a team in a community of people who are like-minded, purpose-driven, passionate, um, and are willing to let themselves sort of see over the horizon through the moments where it just feels like a hard slog, because it just feels like a hard slog sometimes. Um, If I could wave a magic wand and not have to deal with it, I would do away with the audit 990 process. (laughs) It makes my ass ache. I understand why we do it, and we do it very well at Western Justice Center and dot all our I's and cross all our T's because it's important that funders uh, understand that we are handling their money appropriately and that we are managing ourselves wisely and that our board is exercising its fiduciary oversight responsibilities. All of those things are great. It's not my favorite. Yeah, first of all, you've used a lot of terms that people may not understand. So just so everybody knows, if you, <laughs> as a 501c3, as a public yes. charity, as a nonprofit, um, you, you have- You exist for the public good. You exist for the public good and you get public dollars and you need to show how you spend them. And that's what a tax return, that is what a 990 means. It is a tax return that you have to do by the IRS and it sucks just like- Very Lisa. long. So the finance piece, not so fun. Because, you know, a big part of what we do also is recruiting and search, which now everybody knows hire us to do yeah. your, your search. Um, Western Justice Center did not hire us to do their search, but I want everybody to search. <laughs> and that team is so important because yeah. when you come in as an executive director, you are only as strong as your team. So if you're yeah. if your operations person or your fundraising person or your finance person or your HR person is not good at what they do, you're not good at what you do. And I do think that that piece is so vital. So I appreciate you saying that. And the reason I say that about finance is where we spend our money communicates what our values are. So I love finance and a nonprofit because we're essentially looking at the future and saying, what are we investing in to carry out the mission of this organization? Hmm. And the budget and our finance plan is our financial roadmap 
to carrying out that vision. So for all of the CPAs who are thinking, do I want to serve on a nonprofit board? The answer is yes. Always yes. Really do. I love the finance piece because you need to know it. No matter what you do, if you have a for-profit business or a nonprofit, you got to know where you are. And I do think the finance piece is important, but God, is it dry. It is a very different world to ask for money. Very specific world you have to be to love it. And it's it's hard. You had a great interview with Lisa Stein from StoryCorps, who's in that controller CFO finance position. Mm -hmm. She loves that position. So what I would say to that young person is, Follow your joy, gain experience, get great mentors, and stay flexible and open because, you know, I can't see around corners. I don't know where my career is going. I have to be open. Well, I choose to be open to an unexpected opportunity or path. And those are the folks that I think um, are the best leaders, are the people who are always in that place of learning and growing and being on the adventure of life. You really brought it back to what I think is really important. Seize the day, right? Take that opportunity. What is thrown at you, do it. Like if there's a way that you can do it, don't question it, do it. And I think that that's so important. I want to take the now immortal words of Madam Vice President Kamala Harris. Oh, can I say that again? I'm just going to say it again. Madam Vice President Kamala Harris, who said, I may be the first right? My mother told me, you may be the first, but make sure you're not the last. And and I think that's very important too, um, is if you come in and through your journey or your hard work or and or privilege, from my perspective, I've got to make sure that what I create that comes with me gives as much opportunity to as wide a range of people as possible. And to, I think it's very, very important because um, I do think that um, a lot of positions of leadership go do not go to BIPOC people, that do not go to Black, Indigenous, and other people of color. Um, and so if you're a white person and you are in a position of authority, you, know, you have to be c- conscious. How do you recruit people to your board? How do you bring staff, people onto your staff? How do you work with volunteers? We're all in this together. Again, it goes back to like, be an accomplice, not just an ally. An ally, you can mouth words. And then when things get complicated, you could just sit it out. And an accomplice is in there in the messiness of all of it. An accomplice is in the messiness of all of it. That's our, like our motto for today. An accomplice is in the messiness of all of it. Also, I love that you brought up our vice president, our madam vice president. That makes me so happy that you did. And as you did that, I cheers the screen. Nobody got to see that. but You I did. Cheered. I will raise I my did. green lime bubbly can and we're we're toasting each other through the zoom screen we did we just did Uh uh-oh everyone i think it's that time again it is that time for matt's plane across the country and ashley what question do you have for me yes matt this question comes from audrey i thought nonprofit meant that no one gets paid because all money goes toward the cause why do people get paid for working at a nonprofit? That's fantastic. I love everything about that question. And let's just say 
A nonprofit is a company just like a for-profit is a company. People who run these organizations need to get paid. And the problem is that they need to get paid fairly. And so just because you want an organization to run efficiently, it's a homeless shelter, and you don't want to see money going to admin, or you don't want to see money going to operations, you just want it to go to programs, here's the thing. People need to work there. People need to make living wages there. And we want to pay our people who work in nonprofits enough money so that they don't have to use our services. So it's really important that A, everybody knows and everybody understands that folks who work at nonprofits need to get paid fairly and equitably. And also that just because it's a nonprofit doesn't mean that it can't make money at the end of the year because without making money, it can't do its services. So let's keep supporting us. I think that's a great answer, Matt. I think a lot of our um, listeners, especially those who work in nonprofit, get that question a lot. So thank you so much for Matt explaining all of us. Now back to the episode with Elisa Barrett. You know, I think you have such an interesting history of of kind of where you where you started in this nonprofit space and where you are now. And so I'd love to talk a little bit about that. So you, I mean, you're a lawyer. You started in law and were doing some amazing work in nonprofits, not to say you're not doing that now, but now you've moved on to be an executive director. So uh, I'm curious if you can go back in time before you even thought about becoming an executive director, and this is unfair because I'm sure you have some board members listening, would you, would you have said, you know what, I love practicing law, I want to stick with that world, or would you be like, yes, I'm really happy that I became an executive director. And oh, yes. The organization, right? Yeah, without hesitation, yes. I mean, I, I actually am one of those people who didn't go right from college to law school. I took a few years off and I, you know, volunteered at the Needle Exchange Clinic in the Tenderloin in San Francisco as part of a lesbian documentary filmmaking collective, because of course, what else are you going to do after college if you live in the Bay Area? Um, <laughs> and I didn't really know that I, I, my parents wanted me to go to law school and I resisted. And I ended up working on a series for POV. It was a four-part series on the LGBT um, civil rights movement. And my job as a lowly production assistant was to sit in a basement in Manhattan where cockroaches were crawling over my feet and review lots of film footage for B-roll and extras. But I was assigned to the segment on the culture wars and the segment on hate crimes. And I got done interning and being the PA on that film for the summer. And I was like, I got to get a law degree. Mm. There is some really crazy stuff going down in our country and as you know, a person who is part of this larger movement, I want to do my part and be of service. And I think I really need more tools than I have right now. And that's why I went to law school. There was a part of me that wanted to go to law school. I'm a terrible student. So I'm TCLA. And I remember like my friends who were in grad school and law school, like co-students would actually like rip out books. So like they get better grades, which to me is insane. Um, but if somebody were thinking of going to law school, like you know, what do they need to do? How, like, what are they in for? I don't know. It's interesting. I kind of, you know, that scene in Legally Blonde in the first movie where she goes and they're sitting in a circle and they're each talking about like this one organized a march on Washington and this one, I totally had that 
at that experience. And I was actually platinum blonde at the time. Oh yeah, that's amazing. <laughs> it came around to me and I was like, so I've worked on this LGBTQ civil rights documentary and here I am. I really came to law school from a very public interest perspective. I, I went to Michigan Law School. I chose Michigan because they were starting the first externship program in South Africa. This was in the 90s after apartheid had fallen and the new constitution had been written and sexual orientation was a protected part of the Bill of Rights chapter, uh, which is a whole chapter in the South African constitution. And so I was just like, I want to go to South Africa. I want to work on human rights and conflict resolution and I want to be part of the gay civil rights movement. And so I came in and I really actually had to just find my people. And that was really important. I would say, choose a school that offers a focus that you are passionate about and then find your people. And that kind of helped me keep my eye on the prize. And so whenever I would be in you know, civil procedure or torts or something where I just thought, what am I doing here? Um, I would remember just just remember why you're doing this and it's only three years and then you get to be a lawyer and you get to have this amazing toolkit at your disposal. I've been actually having this conversation. I think I've talked about it in a few other podcasts and I'm, I'm very curious what you think because I don't have an answer. So we grew up, um, we're on the same age. We grew up in a time when it wasn't so cool to be gay or lesbian. Like it just wasn't cool. Truly. Um, and now I feel like we've like, I mean, we can be married. Like there's just, it's, it's really changed. Exciting. And so good. But also my question for you is, and I'm so curious what you have to say. Kids these days, kids these days, God, I sound like my grandparents. Uh, but kids these days who come out, like they don't, they don't really have to worry. And like, they're coming into a very different world than we did. Do you think that they should have some kind of understanding and appreciation of what we, and then the people before us went through, or should they just enjoy it and not have to think about how, how far we've come and how bad it was? What a wonderful question. It's something that Josh and I talk about as well. And I should say, I did identify as lesbian and then I identified as bi and then I identified as pan. And my spouse, who was my wife, transitioned during our marriage. So I love the whole alphabet. So I think this is a great question. And, and I, I think it's actually a very serious one. And I'm glad that you, you asked it. And I, I think about it in the same way that I think about this in connection with my Judaism. I think that if we are fortunate, then it is, as we learn in early American jurisprudence, this is a constitution we are expounding. But as we have seen, the development of our rights is often not a linear process and it curves back on itself. Um, you know, when Jews came to this country, we were not considered white. Uh, we The deed to my house says, no Jews, no Negroes. Um, the title was from 1941. And I think of uh, European descendant Jews as having what I call revocable whiteness. So we may be accepted in that way now, but depending on where you live in this country and in the time and place, that might not be so. And I, I would have our queer youth think about their rights in the same way. The composition of the Supreme Court right now does not make any case for LGBT civil rights a home run. Depending on where you live, the legal structure may support your rights, but the social structure or the educational system may not. I love that there are tens of thousands of young 
queer people and gender nonconforming people in our country who can come out and feel supported and not have to worry that they're going to be thrown out of their homes or feel that they have to kill themselves. Thank God, right? And it's really important to know where you came from. I remember being on the subway the day after the elections in 2008 to go downtown to protest after Proposition 8 passed. And I remember being on the red line with a whole bunch of young, fabulous people <laughs> who were like, I can't even believe this was like a thing. Oh, that's amazing. I, yes, that's amazing. Mary, it's a thing. <laughs> and I say that with love. With love. You know, it's love. so interesting that you would bring up the deed because so my grandmother, who was like the true matriarch of this family, I mean, I am beyond impressed and that's a whole other show, but she moved here from Baltimore and mm-hmm. remembered seeing that no Jews, no Blacks, no dogs. Like that was the sign everywhere. And I feel like, you know, it's just so interesting that you would say that because I think that you're right too. We do need to remember it. And I think we need to cherish where we are because it could change at any time. Um, But I just, you know, that's funny that they were on the subway and just were so shocked. It it places us, it grounds us in um, both the intersectionality of our identity. There are many Jews of color. There are many queer people of color. Uh, many of us, just by our existence, intersectional. Uh, but it also reminds us of something that, you know, John Lewis would talk about um, being brokers for racial justice. Or uh, I heard a wonderful speaker say, don't just be an ally for racial justice, be an accomplice mm. for racial justice. An accomplice has skin in the game. Um, and I think when we place a struggle, we, we other the struggle we lower the stakes for ourselves. It becomes easy to kind of take a seat on the bench. Let's be grounded in our memory, even as we can appreciate having uh, some privilege attached to our existence. I really like the accomplice versus ally. I'm going to use that for now on. That's fantastic. That is. Well, so I don't think that we decided that this was going to be the case, although I kind of feel like now we need a little bit of like a queer education. First of all, you brought this of these terms up, so I'm so curious, right? Because I get confused. Everybody gets confused. So we used to be gay and lesbian. Then we became LGBT. And then we became LGBTQIA, right? Like LGBTQIA+. IA+. We're like as big as the alphabet wants to be. <laughs> I'd like to just call us queer and call, call it a day, but I realize that pisses a lot of people off for me to say that. So I'm going to leave it at that. I'm curious, if you don't mind, I'm going to get personal. You don't have to share if you don't want to, but um, you talked about your wife transitioning uh, mm-hmm. and I know that he's a, he's a playwright, but what was that like? I mean, so, and again, I'm a little bit, I'm a little pushy. I've also had a little bit to drink. So you said you identified as a lesbian. You married a woman. He's now Josh. A man. So explain to me, like, how did you respond to that? I mean, did you know all along? We were married by our rabbi in Texas. We used wife. Uh, We felt like this was kind of like a radical breaking open of the patriarchy. Um, And he was always um, genderqueer and became more gender nonconforming. And then we had been married for about 13 years and he came out to me and said, I would like to transition. But he said, "Uh, I think if I lived my whole life and I never lived as the other gender, I would think that I had not lived my full journey. But if it's going to mean that our marriage ends, I I won't do it. And you're a lesbian, so how can I? I said, well, 
you didn't tell me about this and I didn't tell you that I don't exactly identify as a lesbian and I feel more bi. And then I, I had friends who identified as pansexual and I was like, what's that? Um, Cause they were younger. I was like, all right. what's that? <laughs> and they said, well, it means that since there's more than two genders, you don't fall in love based on assigned gender that you are pansexual rather than bisexual. And I thought the shoe fits, let's wear it. So that was really our journey. And, you know, here we are still together. That's a fantastic story. And thank you for sharing. And I do think it's interesting. I mean, both of you were able to like be your real true selves. There is a reason to be attached to labels. It gives you a tribe to belong to. And sometimes I think what's scary for folks about younger people is that they're not really attached to any of that. Right. And I love that. Um, I think there are some things that we might want to stay attached to. They give us nuance and complexity and they're part of the layers of our identity, but a fluidness means also an ability to see more or empathize or accept difference in others. And living in a society that's as polarized as we are now, I think that that level of fluidity is actually very good news for the future. Yeah, no, I agree. And actually what's so interesting to me we were, we were with some friends this weekend and, and um, talking to their kids and was so interesting, as you said, about the next generation and, and believing and needing to feel like you're in a, you're part of your tribe. So like, I have always felt really comfortable in the gay box or the Jewish box, right? Um, but these kids who are like 24 and 25, not that much younger than, than mm-hmm. we are, but they, both boys were, were very clear that they didn't care what the gender was. Like it didn't matter to them. And I thought that was so interesting because that was not the case when we were growing up. So I think just in like that one or two generations changed, people don't need to be in that box anymore. It is so interesting to just watch it happen, just literally watch it happen. Um, and so different than our world. And I, I think what's really important for our listeners to hear uh, and to think about is it's okay to ask questions. If you don't know, it's okay to ask questions. It's okay. I don't think it's going to offend people if you have a question about what it means to be trans, what it means to be pan, how you want to be referred to. I think that's okay. It's a very interesting question, um, right? And when we think about the social justice movement, I think there's a two strategies. You can call people in and you can call people out. And I think there's a place for each strategy. We're having a calling in moment with each other where we create uh, what we like to call at the Western Justice Center, brave space rather than safe space. Brave space means there may be conflict. There may be disagreement. We can still remain in community with each other through that. We can ask questions and we can try to call each other in to a moment. And then if we need to call out, we do, but we do that in a way with loving kindness So I think, yes, right? I love that, that we can say to people, if you don't know, ask. And that's okay, as long as you do it in a loving way, because things are changing every day. So last question, tell the listener why they should go online right now, look up the Western Justice Center, and write you a check. What's going on? Tell us about the Western Justice Center. Yeah, I think we have a huge opportunity right now to build a different model for how we deal with conflict, discipline, 
culture, climate on our school campuses. We've been investing in school campus police. We've been investing in suspensions and expulsions. Imagine if we invested in our students, if we gave them the tools that they need to not just stay in school, but to become leaders in their communities. Imagine if when your child got into a situation where they were having feelings or they got into a conflict or something happened on social media that burbled over into the school campus, if instead of getting thrown out of class and sent to the principal's office and then maybe sent home, they had an opportunity to sit down with other students and resolve that issue amongst their peers, right? So that's, that's the work that we do. We're building a movement to transform our relationship to punishment in our schools. And it starts from a place of equity because those programs do exist. Investments in social emotional learning, investments in early interventions that are called behavioral, positive behavioral intervention strategies. All of those things are happening uh, in a lot of private schools in a lot of wealthier communities where there's high property values and the public schools are very well funded. This is a matter of equity. We are not making those investments in communities that are dealing with the results of systemic racism, multi-generational poverty, and other forms of oppression. So let's flip that script and make a different investment and create a different future. Thank you. I love, I love everything that you do. I really hope that you are beyond proud of yourself because you are, listen, like when I do these and I meet all these phenomenal people, I'm like, shit, I didn't do anything in my life. So I also really appreciate you, you talking about your personal journey as well. I thank you for everything that you're doing, everything that you've shared with me about your organization. And if anybody is, you know, still with us, um, definitely go to Western Justice Center online. It's westernjustice.org. Dot right? org. Mm-hmm. Go on to their website, write them a check. They're doing an amazing job. And uh, I really appreciate you, Lisa. I thank you very much for being a part of this show. Oh, thank you so much, Matt. I just really treasure being in community with you. And I love that you're doing this podcast. And I'm, I really hope people listen because they're fascinating conversations with a very eclectic group of people. And um I just, I think it's lovely and I'm, I'm really honored to be on the show. Thank you. Hey, Ashley. Hey, Matt. So, uh, what'd you think? I love that episode. Truly. All I can think of is Wayne's world. Wayne and Garth, we're not worthy. We're not worthy bowing down because she's amazing. It's always hard for me to do interviews with folks who are that amazing and accomplished, which by the way, is everybody on this show, let's be honest. It is humbling for sure to have these incredible guests. Speaking of conflict resolution, Ashley, and I feel like you would enjoy this. So as you know, we just moved offices in Pasadena and we now have two bathrooms. It's a big office. I had really assumed that I was going to get my own bathroom. It was just going to be Matt Kamen's bathroom. Kind of like that episode on Seinfeld with George Stanza when he had his own. Do you know what I'm talking about? But Matt, you are the only man in an office of like 10 women. Correct. So I'm not sure it makes a whole lot of sense that you would get your own and all the women would have to share. I don't see the logic in any of that, but I will tell you what I do is I leave the toilet seat up every time I go. 
So I just kind of make a point like this should be my bathroom. That's very mature of you. That's Not at all passive aggressive. I mean, what Lisa would say about that in terms of how that's working to create harmony in the office. So Elisa would not be happy about any of this. And the other thing that we decided to do going against completely everything that she stands for is that we decided that we would print up really passive aggressive email lines for the bathroom walls. <laughs> I find hilarious. I'm sure you would find them hilarious. Okay, such as? Such as when people write in emails, per my last email, or they say reattached for your convenience, <laughs> or they say, as no doubt you are aware, Shoot, I say that kind of stuff all the time. <laughs> Is this how people are interpreting? Oh my gosh, Elisa, I might need a one-on-one -on -one counseling session. I love this idea. And yes, I do think that Elisa might have some thoughts about the kind of workplace environment that this is creating. So nobody said that, that we were above any of this. And I want everybody to know that if you do come to our office, and I hope you do, I hope you come to our office, the door may be locked, but I hope that you come to our office. And when you find the bathrooms and you find the one with the toilet seat up, that's mine, please don't use it. And when you go into the other bathroom, you will see all these fantastic posters on the walls. And it is hilarious. Every time I go to the bathroom, I laugh. Can I just say, getting back to Elise's episode for a second, that as I was listening to it, one of my favorite parts is when she talks about the conversations that she likes to have with people on airplanes and how she likes to engage people that come from very different backgrounds from her. And I think, first of all, it's a brilliant tactic because where else can you talk to somebody that's totally different from you when you are 10,000 feet in the air and strapped into your seat with a total stranger next to you? But I think that she needs to write a book cataloging all of these conversations and call it like, what should she call it? What about just fasten your seatbelt? This is going to be a bumpy ride. See, Matt, this is why you get paid the big yeah. bucks. And I get paid 25 cents an hour. <laughs> Did you get a raise? <laughs> so anyway, I'm very, very, very excited about our Thanksgiving episode. It's going to be so exciting because it is with a woman who is spectacular. Her name is Heidi. And why don't you tell everybody about her? Yeah, Heidi Johnson, she's the founder and CEO of Charity Matters. Just an incredible story. And I don't want to give away too much from the podcast, but tragedy struck her life several years ago. And from that came a profound understanding of the importance of life and of giving back. Talk about turning tragedy into something beautiful. And, and that is certainly the case here. And Matt, Heidi also has a podcast, doesn't she? She does. And I'm not going to say it's better than ours. I'm not going to say ours is better than hers. What I'm going to just say is that what I love about her podcast and, and by the way, Ashley, she's going to interview me. So good luck to that. I thought that's what you were going to say you loved about it, that you were on it, but okay. Sorry. I mean, I mean she is very lucky to have me, but the, what is so cool about her podcast truly is that she's interviewing founders of nonprofits and because this episode is coming out of Thanksgiving and because we really should be thankful for everything that we have. It will be lovely for everybody who listens to this around Thanksgiving to be thankful to all of the founders out there who really have started these amazing nonprofits and that's what she does. I hope that all of you who are still with us, all three of you, uh, do tune in to next week to listen to Heidi and to enjoy learning about the fantastic people out there and for all of us to be thankful at Thanksgiving. <laughs> <laughs>